So uh, here's kind of the, the deal is we're starting this new series and it's called All the Feels. And we're going to be talking about all the different emotions that we feel throughout the Christmas season and how they relate to the first Christmas. And, and I've realized that so much of Christmas is based upon what you feel. We spend a lot of time and a lot of energy, a lot of money trying to feel specific feelings like nostalgia and warmth and connectedness and generosity. And, and those are the feelings that we really want to, uh, we really want to try to uh, achieve during the holiday season. Um, and so we do things like we buy presents and we have parties and we eat lots of food and we do decorations and we play Christmas music and, and we're really trying to stir up these emotions. But I've kind of come to believe that whatever you're feeling in life is just going to be magnified at the Christmas season, right? So if you're having a good year, life is going well, you're probably going to feel um, all of those emotions during the Christmas season. But if you are, are feeling something other than that, you are going to experience that uh, magnified at Christmas. Is um, At Christmas, whether you're having a great season or not so great, I think that you will experience the chaos and the messiness of Christmas during this season because life is messy and so Christmas is messy. And so there may be a moment in which you have to do the family dinners with the in-laws and you're sitting around, you're with all the family, and it's the very people you have spent all year trying to avoid, right? And you know the tension is there, and you feel it, and they feel it, and you're just thinking, just help us make it through without a Jerry Springer moment, right? We just need to make it through the, this dinner. Or you feel the financial stress. You've been feeling it all year long, and now you're supposed to provide all these presents for the kids and family members, and you're not sure how you're going to make ends meet or or maybe the family arrangement is bringing some stress into your life. You've got to go to mom's house and dad's house, and it's kind of awkward because they kind of have this new family that's being formed, and you're trying to figure out how you fit into it. Or, or worse yet is you are reminded of the person who isn't there, that somebody is missing in your life, and, and that Christmas season is just another uh, harsh reminder that they're, they're no longer in your life. doesn't matter if you're having a great year or a horrible year. Christmas is going to be messy. Now, I think that um, if we are going to tell the Christmas story, we got to be honest about it. we got to talk about the good and the bad. See, when we think about the Christmas story, we think about this beautiful little picture of a baby Jesus and a manger and this mom and dad and shepherds, and it's just this great scene. And if we're going to talk about the Christmas story, and I think if, if you were going to tell the Christmas story, we would probably begin there with this Christmas nativity scene. But I want, to talk, I want to kick off this series talking about the Christmas story and when it actually started. Because it didn't start in the, with a baby in a manger. It started a long time before that. And so if you're not a church person, you don't know anything about the Bible, you have decided to come on a really, really good day because when you walk out of here, you may or may not believe what I'm going to tell you, but you're going to know the Bible because I'm going to give you the Cliff Notes version of the Bible, okay? Old Testament and some of the new. And so here's how it all begins. It is like any good story, you start at an introduction. And the introduction is usually introducing a couple things. One, uh, it's going to introduce the characters. And so in the first book of the Bible, which is, of course... Genesis. It's going to be a play along. This is an all play. Okay, we're going to go back and forth. It's going to be great. Okay, so it starts in Genesis, and we're introduced to some of the characters. The characters, the main characters at least, um, is God, and he is the creator of all things, eternally existing, and then we have man. And man is created in God's image, and we are created in order to have a loving relationship with our creator. But just like any story, we quickly realize that there is some issues. There's going to be a problem. There's going to be some hurdles that we're going to have to face. 
And the story of Genesis in the first couple of chapters tells us what went wrong with uh, what went wrong with us and what went wrong with the world. And this thing called sin enters into the world. And really what sin is, is us deciding that we don't want to worship our creator, that we want to be in charge of our own life, that we want to be the ultimate authority. And so when we decided that, the relationship between God and man was broken. And when that broke, we broke. Relationally, physically, emotionally, we were broken. And we have been so ever since then. It's what is wrong with the world. And so we have to figure out, how do we, how do we fix this? What, what are we going to do in order to mend ourselves and mend the world? And, and the only solution really is that that relationship has to be put back together between creator and creation, between God and man. And the, the dilemma that we find ourselves in is the gap is too big for us to be able to bridge, that we can't work our way back to a relationship with our God. It's only on if he initiates it, if he makes a way for us to, to be mended, that we can have a relationship with our creator. And so as a, as a, a result of all of this, man has ever, ever since then has been trying to figure out what our place in the world is, who we are, what's wrong with us, and how do we fix this? And this is where we find ourselves today. Well, 4,000 years ago, God jumps back into the picture and he says, hey, Abraham, random guy. We don't know why he chose Abraham. We don't know what was important or special. I don't think anything was. He talks to this guy, Abraham, 4,000 years ago, and he says, listen, um, you know this whole man-God separation thing? Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna use you to help put this back together. And so he makes him a set of promises, and he says, Abraham, here's the deal. If you're faithful to me and, and, and you worship me, I'm going to give you a few things, and it's like an unconditional promise. And we can really break them down into three things. He says, first thing is this, is through your family, I'm going to build a great nation. Now, you got to realize, at this point, he's 75 years old, has no kids. There's not going to be a great nation. He doesn't even have a family. But God says, no, I'm going to build through your family. In the coming generations, you're going to become an entire nation of people. And you're going to be my people. You're going to be God's chosen people. And I'm going to have a, a special relationship with these people. I'm going to reveal certain things about me. And then he says, and because you're going to be a nation, I'm going to give you a land, a promised land in which this nation can flourish. And then the last one is the biggie. The big promise that he makes is he says, through you and your family and this nation that I'm going to bring up, I'm going to bless the entire world. It's going to be through you that the relationship between God and man is going to be reconciled. And so if we follow the storyline in, in Genesis, we find out quickly that it does come true. Abraham starts to have kids. One of his kids is named Isaac. The other is Ishmael. Okay, good. We're getting there. All right. And if you remember a little bit about Isaac's story, Isaac has a, an encounter with his father. And what happens is Abraham, he loves God. He trusts God. And God tells him, I want you to take your son up to the top of this mountain, put him on an altar, and I want you to sacrifice him for me. I want to see how much you love me, how much you trust me. And so he goes and he actually is about to sacrifice his only son and when he or his son. And when he does that, uh, right before he plunges the knife into his son, God stops him and says, okay, I believe you. You're in. You trust me. And this, this is 4,000 years ago. This is a foreshadowing of what is to come, that there will be a father who will sacrifice his son. And so after this, we find out that Isaac has a couple of children, and that is Jacob and you don't want to play now because you're afraid you're going to get the wrong answer, aren't you? Esau, there we go. Thank you, Jacob and Esau. And if you ever, um, 
if you ever feel bad about your family, especially the, 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 during the holidays, and you're like, man, that's so dysfunctional, I just want you to just go through Genesis and start reading about the families of the Bible, and you will feel so much better about your family. <laughs> I hear people say, oh, man, I just want a biblical family, and I'm like, no, you don't. No, you don't. You don't want that, because they're a mess. And so we find out that Jacob ends up stealing his brother's blessing, and later on changes his name to... Israel. Oh, we are, we're going to get this. I'm going to keep, I'm going to, oh, I'm going to get you in this. All right. So Jacob slash Israel has 12 sons. They later become the 12 tribes of Israel. And his most famous son is, you got this, you got this. Oh, yeah. Joseph. Joseph is his most famous son. And whether you're a church person or not, you know the story of Joseph where he is sold into slavery in Egypt. And he eventually, because of his faithfulness, God rewards him and he come, becomes a leader in Egypt. Well, chance would have it that there would be a famine and his entire family would have to go to Egypt and they meet their brother there. And then something strange begins to happen. As this family lives in Egypt over the coming years, uh, actually the, ne the next 400 years, we see that they become not just a family, but they become a, a nation that a whole nation comes through this lineage. The only problem is they're a nation of slaves in Egypt. And so God sends this man named Moses into Egypt, and he says, I'm taking God's people out of here, and we're going to the promised land. And so he marches them out of Egypt, and they wander in the desert for the next 40 years until they finally get to enter into the promised land. And this is where it looks like things are finally going to take off, where this nation is going to be built because we have a people, and we have a land, and now God can finally use us. And so if we watch over the next 400 years, this nation begins to grow and it begins to establish itself. And we see the pinnacle of the nation, kind of the golden era of Israel. And there's two central leaders, two kings. And of course, that's David and Solomon. Okay, David and Solomon. And David, uh, David is known as the warrior king. And he goes and he defeats other armies and eventually he creates peace within the region. And then his son Solomon takes over, and he's the builder king. And he builds different things. One of the things he's most known for is the temple. He builds Solomon's temple, and he is wise, and he is wealthy. But the only problem with Solomon is he starts to stray away from God. Instead of worshiping the true God and following his commands, he decides, well, I think it would be more strategic if I started to marry these foreign wives. We can have partnerships between the nations. And with these foreign wives come foreign gods, and then the nation fell into idolatry. And so instead of straightening up, they continue down this path. And after Solomon dies, the nation of Israel splits into two kingdoms. You've got the northern kingdom, and you've got the southern kingdom. In the north, you have Israel, and in the south, you have Judah. And it starts going really bad from here. Things start to uh, spiral down because of evil kings that are in charge. People have turned their back on God. And along the way, as they're making these choices, God continues to send prophets. And the prophets are really messengers from God. They're God's mouthpiece. And they start to warn them. They start to tell them, hey, you need to straighten up or, or God's going to allow you to be, is going to discipline you. And of course, they don't listen. And within 300 years, the northern kingdom of Israel is totally destroyed. It is gone. It is wiped off the face of the earth. The southern kingdom is just barely hanging on. And during this whole process, as they are trying to hold on, still trying to uh, just simply exist, God continues to send prophets to them to tell them to straighten up. 
And one of the prophets that he sends is a prophet named Isaiah. And Isaiah comes along and he says things like this. He says, I will make you the light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Now, you got to realize in these moments, as they're just hanging on, they're thinking, light of the world brings salvation. Are you kidding me? I need somebody to bring salvation to us. How are we ever going to save anyone? We can't even save ourselves. And he continues on and he says, I'm going to send you a savior. This person is going to bring peace and justice and righteousness, and he is going to have an everlasting rule on the throne of David. He's going to be the light of the world. So be on the lookout, because before I send this Savior, I'm going to send a forerunner. This person is going to prepare the way for the Lord. So mark it down. It's going to happen. And right after this, after Isaiah comes and he makes these big claims, and it looks like Israel is just barely going to hang on, the southern kingdom is invaded and conquered yet again. For the next 300 years, it's total chaos. The city is destroyed. Solomon's temple is destroyed. The elite of the country are hauled off as exiles. It looks like it's going to be just like the northern kingdom. It's going to cease to exist in the world. And during the middle of all this chaos, God sends one more prophet. And this is the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi. And here's what he says. He says, my name will be great among the nations. From where the sun rises to where it sets, in every place incense and pure offerings will be brought to me, because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. So they're in the middle of complete chaos. It is a total disaster. It is a mess. And God says, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. There will be people in every corner of the earth who are going to be worshiping the God of Israel. And then he says, don't forget, I'm going to send a messenger who will prepare the way before me. So be on the lookout. The Savior will come, and when he comes, there's going to be someone who will be the forerunner. And then, right after this, God goes silent. For the next 400 years, God doesn't say a word. He doesn't send a prophet. Nothing crazy or miraculous happens. And in fact, it gets even worse for Israel. As if it couldn't get any any worse than it is, it continues to get dominated by nation and nation and nation. And then the last nail in the coffin is in 63 BC, where the Roman Empire is beginning to take over the region, and it gets to Jerusalem. And the general Pompey rides into the city. He slaughters 12,000 Jews, goes up to the temple. And if you don't know, in the temple, there's this thing called the Holy of Holies. And this is where the Ark of the Covenant, this is where God's presence is. Only the high priest can go in there. And if you go in there uninvited, you will surely be put to death. God will kill you. Pompey, this pagan, rides up to the temple walks into the Holy of Holies, looks around and says, there's nothing much here, and walks out. The nation of Israel and their God is a complete joke at this point. This God cannot save his own people, can't take care of his people. In fact, he will allow the most sacred places to be defiled. This God isn't going to bless anybody. This God is about to go into the history books and be forgotten. A few years later, a couple decades later, actually Herod the Great is eventually uh, appointed the king of the region of Judea, and he is called the king of the Jews, where he is a ruthless leader. He will kill women and children. He even kills his own family members if they're a threat to his power, and he is the one that is ruling over the people of God. 
As you can uh, imagine, things were a mess for the nation of Israel. God's promise was as, as good as gone. It was impossible for anything to be made out of this mess, and they were on the brink of extinction. And, and the spiritual condition wasn't any better. Because during all this, the people who were faithful Jews, they just said, looked at their history and they said, well, why would we continue to worship this God? Why would we continue to be faithful? All it has gotten us so far is pain and suffering. And so we're not interested in this. We're going to go live our own lives. And so they're walking away from the faith in droves. Even those who were still religious, there's so much infighting. You have the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Essenes and the Zealots, and, and they're arguing amongst themselves. And so there's lots of tension there. And, and then there was this other group, a small group, but they were still there. They are a remnant. They were the people of God who were still faithful. After all that had happened to them, all the mess that surrounded them, they continued to be faithful, believing that God was going to show up, that he was going to fulfill his promise. And so I want to look at two of these people. We jump into Luke uh, chapter 1. This is where the Christmas story begins. It says, In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. And so we've got two very ordinary people, Jewish, and they're faithful. And they're from this family, the line of Aaron. And Aaron was the first high priest of Israel. And so if you were uh, in his family lineage, you became a priest as well. And so it's kind of like if your great-grandfather, your grandfather, um, your dad, you might become a pastor, let's say, hypothetically. I can't imagine anyone doing that, but let's say that happened. And at the time, there's about 18,000 priests, and so they are, they're divided into 24 divisions and are on a rotating schedule, and so they'll serve in the temple two times or two weeks out of the year. All right, continues on, both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. And so not only were they continuing to be faithful, but they were doing everything right. They're following all the rules, they're doing all the commands, they're living righteous lives. These are the people who are really living for God. And here's what their reward is. They were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. And so let me get this straight. The nation is a mess. It's on the brink of extinction. Our religion is a mess. There's so much infighting going on. And then those of us who are still being faithful, our lives are a mess as well. Because in this time, look, having children today is a big deal. It's a huge blessing. But it is nothing in comparison to how it was in the first century because women were seen as second-class citizens. They didn't have the same rights as men. They weren't able to have any political power, career, anything like that. Their whole purpose was to be a wife and then to be a mother. And so if you were not a mother, not only was it a disgrace, but it was also shameful. Because they believe the reason why you weren't a mother was because of some hidden sin, that God was punishing you. That's why you either could not become pregnant or your child died at an early age, is because you were somehow sinful. And so the whole community around them would look at her and look at this couple and just shake their heads. Continues on and says, Once, when Zechariah's division was on duty, and he was serving as priest before God. He was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And so every day a priest would be chosen to go in and they would burn incense. And as the smoke would rise, it would symbolize their prayers to God. 
And so they would do this thing called casting lots. And the best way that, to understand it is it's kind of like pulling a name out of a hat or rolling a dice. And they kind of believed that God was in the midst of it and he was controlling it. And so this day was Zechariah's day. His name was chosen. And so he was the one that was going to get to go in and uh, burn the incense. And this was a huge deal. This would happen at best once in a lifetime. And so this was probably the most important day of his life. And here's what happens. When the time for the burning of the incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid. Now, if you read the Bible, this is the standard angel greeting. This is how all encounters with angels seem to come. It's like, I get it. It's crazy. Ooh, look at me. I'm big. I'm bright. I'm scary. Don't be afraid. Relax. So he says, do not be afraid. Zachariah, your prayer has been heard. Now, if Zachariah's story just stopped right there and nothing came after this, I think that I would probably be okay with it. Because there are moments, look, I try to pray, I do my best, I try to do spiritual disciplines, and I get distracted, and if just one time in my life, God just whispered, hey, Code, I hear you. I'm like, okay, good, we're connected, we're on the same page. I don't care if you ever answer a prayer in my life, at least I know that you're hearing me. And so he says, Zachariah, I hear you. He says, your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. Now, there's a few different Johns in the Bible. There's a John that's a disciple of Jesus, but this is the John that's known for baptizing people. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. He has to bring them back because they've left, because people have given up on this God. This God is a myth. He's a fairy tale. doesn't exist. He hasn't showed up. So he's going to help bring these people back, and he will go on before the Lord and the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Wait, there's a couple of things in there that I heard is, okay, not only am I going to have a kid, which is miraculous, this is crazy, this is such a blessing, but did you, did you tell me that he's going to come in the spirit and power of Elijah? And did I hear you say something about preparing the way for the Lord? So wait, are you telling me those prophecies, hundreds of years before this, those people, they were actually telling the truth? That this is actually going to happen, that the Messiah is going to come, and, and there's going to be a forerunner, and I get to be his dad? What? And he's in shock, of course, and so he says, yes, angel, how can I be sure of this? And men, take note of this next part. He says, I am an old man, and my wife is, she's well along in years. (laughs) He knows, he's been married for a while. He's not about to go, yeah, she's old. (laughs) Trust me, she's old, dude. Yeah, she's a little old. She's she's lived life, you know. She's, she's, She's seen things, okay. And here's the angel's response, and it's kind of snarky. Um, How can I be sure this is going to happen? The angel said to him, "Uh, I'm Gabriel. (laughs) Like, how do do I think it's going to happen? You do realize I'm an angel, right? You know who you're talking to? 
Well, he continues on, he says, I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, and this is important, which will come true at their appointed time. At their appointed time? Wait a minute. So for the last thousand years, as we've seen Israel be attacked and destroyed and sent off into exile, and we've, we haven't heard from you in 400 years because you've gone silent and everybody's walking away from their faith, you're going to tell me that you have been planning this and this is the time. That somehow this is according to your timetable? And I think God would say, well, well yeah, that's how this works. All of this is according to my plan and according to, to my time. So do you trust me? Do you believe that I'm still in control? Even though it doesn't make any sense right now, and even though it seems chaotic and messy, do you, do you think that I still got it? Because pretty much every Bible story boils down to this question, is do you trust me or not? Who's in charge here? Are you in charge or am I in charge? Do you trust me? And so he continues on, he says, meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. What's crazy is this is, uh, this is just a warm-up act. Because the next verse says this, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent an angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And this is where the real fun begins. And so at Christmas, we see, we see a few things. We see that God has turned a mess first into a miracle. It's a miracle for Zechariah and Elizabeth because they were barren for so long, it looked as if they would never have any children, and God changed that in a moment's time through a miracle. It's also a miracle for the people of Israel because they are in such a mess. It looks like there is no way out of this, like God will never fulfill this promise, and yet He does. And the even bigger miracle, the biggest miracle of all is the mess that mankind has found itself in, where we are disconnected, where we are broken, where we no longer have a relationship with our creator, that a miracle takes place, that creator steps into creation, and eventually he ends up dying by the hands of the people who he has come to save only three days later to rise again, a miracle. And this miracle then becomes a message. And the message is the good news that God has come to reconcile man to himself. The good news is that you no longer have to taste death, that sin has been conquered, that you no longer have to be lost, you no longer have to be broken, that this mess can be cleaned up and fixed. And eventually this message becomes a masterpiece. I don't know if you've ever watched somebody paint before, I'm definitely not an artist, but I admire people who are. And sometimes when they're creating their pieces, um, I watch it, and, and again, I don't know anything about it, but I watch it and I just go, are you sure you've done this before? 
Like, you've painted, right? Because, like, what you're doing, that doesn't make any sense. Those lines, I don't see it. What are you putting together those colors? It's kind of a mess. And then at the very last part of the painting, they kind of put a couple lines together, blend some things, and then you step back and you go, oh, I see it now. (laughs) I see what you're doing. Now the masterpiece, I can see it. I really feel like that's what God does in the world is we see all these random, chaotic, crazy, messy things happening in the world and in our own lives, and then he's painting this picture, and we go, are you sure you know what you're doing? This looks really messy. And then he starts to put a couple pieces together, and then all of a sudden, the mess turns into a masterpiece. And you go, oh, I see now. I see what you were doing there. And so for us, Christmas is a reminder that our faith has not been misplaced, and that God is right there in the middle of our mess. That when it feels like it's too big or it's too late, when it feels like um, there's no way out, when it feels like God is distant, inattentive, maybe doesn't even exist at all, that God is still right there in the middle of our mess. That he's not done with our story and he hasn't forgotten about us. This is a reminder that God is, is faithful. It may not be according to our, our timetable, and it may not be the plan that we would have put together, and yet we are reminded that he is, he is faithful. As we look at Zechariah and Elizabeth, there was nothing special about them. They're regular people. They really only did one thing throughout this whole story. They just kept showing up. They were faithful. They didn't give up. There was probably a lot of moments in which they wanted to feel apathetic, or, or they wanted to feel, um, they wanted to give up, they wanted to Uh, They wanted to quit. They wanted to be cynical, and yet they just kept showing up. They kept saying, God, we will follow. We will trust. We will be faithful. They just kept showing up. When everybody else quit, when everybody else was arguing, they just kept showing up and believing, I think God's still going to do it. And so Christmas is a reminder just to keep showing up even when it's messy. Yeah, your life is messy, your marriage, your job, your kids, your grandkids, your finances. Maybe it's all messy and you're tempted to bail during the mess. God says, don't bail before the blessings. Keep showing up. Keep trusting. Keep believing that I will be there in the midst of your mess. And so my encouragement to all of us is that this Christmas season, Whatever the mess is in your life, whatever you find yourself in and you can't think of a way to fix it or find a way out, that you would keep showing up, that you would keep believing, keep being faithful because you never know when God is going to show up out of what looks like nowhere, looks like totally random and he steps into your story and he takes this mess and he turns it into a masterpiece. Let's pray. Lord God, There is no denying that we find ourselves in a mess. We look at the world, it's a mess. We look at our nation, messy. We look at our families, messy. We look into our hearts, messy. And Lord God, some of the mess is of our own making and some of it is stuff that just, I mean, kind of piled on us. And Lord, whatever mess we may find ourselves in, whether big or small, we just want to continue to hold on to the truth that you are in the midst of our mess, that you are faithful And if we keep showing up, we keep being faithful, that eventually you are going to turn this mess into a miracle, a message, and eventually a masterpiece. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to continue to be faithful. And Christmas can be that reminder 
that you are going to do something in the midst of our mess. Lord, we love you. We thank you. Same we pray. Amen.